Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Susky. Today, we're deviating slightly from our usual format of speaking to top CFOs with a very special guest. Today, I'm joined by Brian Hughes. He's a retired partner of KPMG, an experienced advisor to public VC and PE-backed portfolio companies, and may have one of the most unique perspectives of any guest we've had on the show. While top CFOs are sharing their vantage points individually, Brian's work spans a career's worth of insights navigating significant transactions and he can shed light on what comprehensive preparation looks like for successful organizations. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Andrew, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So just before we hopped on this (laughs) recording, we were starting about discussing the advent of your career. And you graduated from the prestigious Wharton School here in Philadelphia, and then you jumped to Arthur Anderson. Can you tell me a little bit about the beginning of your career at Arthur Anderson and your move to the emerging growth and technology side of that marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I as I mentioned, um, I think when you when you join a firm at a college, sometimes it's luck of the draw in terms of the people and the opportunities that you get to work at at that firm. And so early on in my career, I was fortunate to get exposed to at that time, which Arthur Anderson called the Enterprise Group, and uh, the Enterprise Group was a group that worked with uh, emerging privately held companies that had aspirations of obviously scaling, growing, raising capital, doing transactions, and then potentially going public or getting sold. And so uh, having had exposure to that early on in my career, I decided to to make that my full-time career and uh, essentially joined the enterprise group back two years after getting out of college. And part of that also is luck too with with regards to um, having mentors. And I think everyone who's probably listening to this has a mentor or mentors. And I was fortunate to have an individual by the name of Howard Ross be my mentor back at Anderson. And today, Howard's a very successful private equity executive for LLO Partners. But I had a chance to work with him for the first 20 years of my career at Anderson before he left and formed LLR. And then he continued to be you know, a force in my life with regards to mentorship for the, for the last 20 years while he's been at LLR. But when he did leave LLR, of course, it allowed me to, to blossom into ultimately what I really have enjoyed doing my first 20 years. And then with the demise of Anderson back in 2002, um, I moved over to KPMG. And, and for the last eight years, I ran their national private enterprise practice uh, nationally, which, again, was a practice focused on working with primarily VC and private equity-backed portfolio companies doing the same things around uh, scaling, raising capital, and exit strategies across audit, tax, and advisory. And so there's lots of you know, great stories locally uh, with regards to every geography, every locality has certain stories that are, are well-known. Uh, one of the better ones that is well-known here locally is Five Below. And uh, if everyone recognizes Five Below, it's you know, it's a retailer that started out as nothing more than a prototype store on Walnut Street back in the in the mid-2000s. And I had the opportunity to work with that company from the day they were a prototype to up through their, their IPO. And I continue to main contact with the company today. So it's sort of, Andrew, that, that sort of life cycle that I like to work with. I work across uh, all stages of, uh, of the life cycle. But I think what people value the most is the fact that, you know, I've been from the startup all the way through the exit. And sometimes exits can get ugly, but I think my experiences across the life cycle really benefited a lot of the companies that I work with. One of the reasons why I wanted to start there is because 
I want to give a great idea to all of our listeners as to the just the incredible perspective that you have across different life cycles of companies. So I really appreciate that. The title of the podcast, The Modern CFO, I was curious if you could take a moment to explain what makes a great CFO in terms of their comprehensive preparation for transactions. You've worked with dozens and dozens of CFOs across life cycles. Are there any distilled lessons that our listeners can learn either if they're aspiring CFOs or currently in the CFO role seat? Is there anything that you can distill for us across? I mean, it's a hard question to ask, but yeah, no, what do you think makes a- up the modern CFO in terms of dealing with our current environment? And I know you started with the example from Five Below, but yep. across life cycles, what sets companies up, in your opinion, for success? Right. Yeah. So I think that's obviously, a, you know, I could spend probably two hours on that question <laughs> uh, by itself. But I think, uh, number one, you know, I think if you're a CFO in a company, you got to understand what your role is. And uh, there's a lot of different things. But I think being the CEO's trusted business partner is probably by far one of the most important things that you can do as a CFO. And you need to really establish that on day one, because that's the individual that's helping set strategy uh, and direction. You know, at the same time, I think you also, as an individual, you need to be aware of sort of what your strengths and your weaknesses are, which will dictate the type of the CFO you're going to be. I think that, um, you know, anybody listening to this podcast is not going to fit into the same mold as, uh, as the other person. But I think if you think about continuously learning um, and leveraging what else is going on in the environment, can only help you improve your day-to-day performance at the company. I also think that today's CFO needs to be more strategic in their thinking. Um, it used to be that you were the numbers guy and you put together the financial statements. Now it's really, you know, how do you how do you make the numbers come alive and really tell the story about you know the company in terms of their operations, uh, the metrics, and the KPIs. And also, it used to be you thought about the CFO just within the financial function. I think it's also extremely important now for the CFO to really get outside of their swim lane and really become more cross-functionally across the organization, supporting all the different functions that help the company operate. Um, And obviously, you can't do any of this unless you build what I would call elite teams below you. And um, uh, that whole talent management is a very difficult process to manage because uh, obviously people are looking for good opportunities. But I would tell you as a CFO, your job becomes, obviously, the ability to be more strategic becomes easier once you've got these elite teams in, in, in the right positions within your organizations. Also aligned with that, of course, would be making sure that you've got the right, you know, not only people, but the processes and technology. So what I call the basic blocking and tackling of, the, of being a CFO, you want to make sure those are all in place so that you can do the things that I mentioned previously about swimming outside your lane. The other part of a CFO is, again, it's uh, multifaceted, and uh, you obviously need to not only have the trust and insight of the people in the company, but also the key investors and stakeholders outside the company, because uh, the CFO and the CEO tend to be the folks that are interfacing the most with investors and board members, and therefore that requires a unique set of skills as well in terms of understanding sort of what their needs and wants are and presenting that in a way in which they can understand it. And then, of course, I think you need to also be somebody who can fix things that get broken quickly, right? That happens in organizations, whether it be through 
you know, acquisitions or divestitures, but you need to make sure that you're able to act quickly to address issues that need attention, you know, on a, on a real-time basis. And then the, the other thing which you don't hear, I think it's also important to recognize that you guys need to have a, an appropriate work-life balance, right? It's not all about work. I think you're much more valuable when you have a balanced perspective that you bring to the the job every day. And that, that obviously means doing stuff outside of work. So those are a couple of thoughts. I'm just really excited about having this conversation is because I've now been doing this podcast for a little bit. And I think the CEO CFO relationship has come up maybe once or twice out of all of our podcasts. And I love mm-hmm. that, that simple addressing that that needs to be a significant and functional relationship first in order to then address all of the moving pieces of capturing KPIs and using data-driven models for strategic decisions and being more strategic in general. And of course, work-life balance is probably the first time that's come up so far, if that's any indicator of the uh, current state of CFOs. But this is why I'm excited to have you on the podcast, because we can distill all these really great lessons over the course of all of these companies that you've worked with and been able to live alongside the growth of. Uh, so I think it's probably in everyone's best interest that we never use the words unprecedented and <laughs> trying to think of any of the other ones. Um, unprecedented, uncertain times, 2020, yep. 2021 has been a roller coaster. And I'm curious, I know the pandemic is pretty unique. I'm wondering, have there been other cycles that, you know, market cycles, we're now dealing with a pretty intense IPO boom. Does this feel reminiscent of any other times in your career? Or are we, uh, you know, before we get into the state of the world today and, you know, what the the marketplace looks like in terms of transactions and what CFOs can do to win 2021, does this feel reminiscent of any earlier market cycles or anything that you've been through? Yeah, so I'll uh, sort of compare and contrast it to the dot-com era, right, back in 2000. And today is very different. I'll tell you why in a moment. But, you know, the dot-com, of course, was with the year 2000 coming upon us and all these dot-com companies being created, there was a plethora of companies that came public that never should have come public. Uh, They really, everything was all about eyeballs and how many people were being attracted to a website as opposed to the metrics of a business. And so companies with zero in revenues were able to get public pretty quickly. And unfortunately, years later, they all, a lot of them imploded. So I think there was the euphoria, if you will, around dot-com that created a unique opportunity for companies to go public, but unfortunately, they shouldn't have been public. And then I'll compare and contrast that today, where I think, and we'll talk more about this later, but the SPAC boom is very much different than sort of the the dot-com boom, in that the companies that are even going public through SPACs today are fairly mature, well-established, uh, later stage, either venture-backed or private equity companies you know, that have a business model, have a management team, typically are obviously generating revenues. They may not be generating profits, but it's a very different feel and type of company going public today than it was back in 2000. So that's one thing I would mention. The second one would be, and I'm sure a lot of folks on the phone here, and this gets back to something I'm going to talk about later on, you know, back in 2007 through nine, the financial crisis, you know, that's an example where, you know, CFOs were called upon to really act quickly to make sure uh, they could uh, limit and uh, contain the damage that was being done by the financial crisis. And so 
Now, that's something that nobody could have predicted. And that's an example of a trigger where the CFO becomes sort of the, the point person to be in the response, if you will, to making sure that costs and any other financial risks are properly taken care of, given what was going on in the world. And then, of course, today, I would say, as I mentioned, uh, with the comparison to the dot-com, today feels very, very different in that even though we've had the pandemic, it's really been certain industries impacted, you know, travel, leisure, hospitality, restaurants. And if you really look at the other industries, they have really benefited greatly by the pandemic and people being at home. And so it's a story of two worlds. And now that we're coming out of the pandemic and people are now able to go back to stores and restaurants without masks, I think that, um, again, those industries will come back, obviously laggards, and you've seen them now perform pretty well in the markets. And so I think we're on a trajectory of all the industries returning to normal and some correcting, rightfully so, because they benefited abnormally just from the pandemic. Interesting. So how has the comparison in that same using the dot-com bubble and the Great Recession, how do you think CFOs are adapting and responding? Has the response been what you've described as the key characteristics and being able to have really strong relationships, which leads to being able to make confident decisions that are you know, maybe more data-driven or more strategic. How has the role of the CFO evolved in, in that sense? Do you think that they're more ready and able to be able to deploy resources? Or was this so far out of left field this year that it is a little reminiscent of before uh, we had a lot of technology involved in uh, these decision-making uh, right. So I think it depends upon what industry you were involved with. So you you were either opportunistic or you were defensive, depending upon the industry. And so the opportunistic people were taking advantage of really, you know, raising capital because the business metrics were improving uh, and potentially going public, where the other ones were defensive in terms of looking at government supported programs like PPP and trying to maintain their employment base. So it really depended upon what side of the street you were on with regards to how you were reacting. But the key is that on either side, you as a CFO were reacting one way or another, and you were called into action very quickly. Right. That's a good point. We've had a pretty broad mix of CFOs in terms of being highly strategic or you know, more traditionally uh, financial engineering oriented. And it seems as if both were heavily called upon to step up in, in the past year or so. I was thinking it might be fun to do sort of a more rapid fire, what the current environment is today and how people are responding to shifts in, in this marketplace. Mm -hmm. The first thing that always comes to my mind is, is fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, there, I think there's an adage that's sort of along the lines of when you can fundraise, it might be time to go out and fundraise. Uh, just because it's a very onerous and challenging, and sometimes it takes considerably more time and energy than anyone could expect. But right. <laughs> the uh, the state of the world in terms of public and private market fundraising uh, could be a, a quick, you know, what are you seeing? What's working? What's been uh, more challenging? I know we just mentioned the the SPAC mania going on. Is that you know representative of you said there's more mature companies yet it's definitely a faster and expedited route to uh, you know being publicly listed. What are you seeing in the world of fundraising today? Right. So there's no question that you know private markets continue to dominate 
with regards to the amount of dry capital they've got available, uh, whether it be private equity or uh, or uh, venture capital. And in fact, uh, venture capital had their best year in 2020 uh, than they've ever had. And uh, I think the same thing with private equity. So that continues to be very strong. It remains to be seen in terms of how that it w- will be impacted going forward with regards to certain changes around the carry that may be proposed by uh, the current administration. But at the end of the day, I don't probably see that having much impact. But the more important thing has been, you know, with the length of time that a lot of private companies have stayed private because of the plethora and availability of capital. And we've also seen the IPO markets open up rather dramatically last year into this year. And all through three different ways, direct listings, a regular IPO, or, or a SPAC transaction. And so, you know, and SPACs just recently, there's been a lot of them that have occurred in the last uh, year, recently have slowed down really because of a, of a matter that the, uh, the SEC raised about certain accounting for warrants that get issued in connection with these initial IPOs that have caused some people to slow down and they've had to refile their 10Ks. So although it's slowed down temporarily, I think it uh, is probably here to stay. And in fact, we're also seeing overseas, the European community now begin to adopt the SPAC as a viable for, uh, way in which to, to go public in the, in, in, the, um, in the European Union. So, so long story short, whether it be public or private, there's a real uh, significant availability of capital that's driving Either one, helping companies that are earlier stage grow while they're private, or two, help those later stage private companies uh, come public. We were just joking before coming on that today's actually uh, the New York Stock Exchange's (coughs) anniversary, I believe. You know, things have changed a bit since brokers met under a buttonwood tree. But I'm thinking more about how we should be thinking in terms of the CFOs who are out fundraising right now, that preparation and what type of financing is available. Uh, The direct listing uh, seems to be the way to go if you don't need to do a traditional roadshow with uh, investment bankers and uh, raising a whole bunch of money. So that's been really interesting. There are a couple of high profile uh, direct listings in the past year. Uh, The SPAC boom is even more compa- I think there's a, a cry from a lot of retail investors to have access to get earlier and earlier into the IPO process, which I think might be a direct uh, response to a lot of the, the slower nature of going public. As you mentioned, there's a huge boom in uh, you know, the amount of money that's being poured into the private markets. But as private companies stay private longer, you know, retail access to opportunities diminishes a bit to capture yep. some of that gain. <clears throat> So transitioning a little bit into uh, the route of M&A transactions, mm-hmm. what are you seeing on, on the M&A front? Is it similar to the fundraising uh, front in terms of just major number of new transactions or is it slowed a bit? Yeah, so the, uh, if you look at the IPO markets, it's really just another form of M&A, right? It's a form of raising capital. But just sort of before I jump into the M&A market, just going back to your points around direct listing SPACs and IPOs, and I'm sure a lot of people realize this, but you know the direct listing is typically, as you mentioned, for the company that's going to go public that doesn't need to raise capital. And uh, they'd like to get um, uh, liquid because they have employees and other you know, institutional owners that own stock that ultimately want to get liquid. It's still the same time frame in terms of getting public as a regular IPO. So the time frame tends to be anywhere from, you know, nine to 
could be 18 months, depending upon your cycle. The one thing about SPACs that I think everyone probably realizes is that you know these companies are going out and raising capital in advance of finding the target. And so therefore, if you're a target company for a SPAC, you, you can get public within anywhere from as short as three months to uh, maybe as long as nine months. Uh, and so the, uh, the time frame for being able to become a public company is significantly reduced. In addition, the SPAC transactions traditionally, you know, return capital to some of the investors. This is a combination of capital out as well as continuity of ownership through the issuance of shares in the, uh, in the, in the new SPAC transactions. So there's an alignment with the public company. But the key thing for the SPACs is really uh, having an entity out there that's already prepared, is public, and what they're just looking to do is, is identify the targets. Now, obviously, there's a, there's a cost to doing that, right? SPACs uh, have promote and founders that traditionally set these companies up. So there is some dilution to uh, the owners of a company that's merging into a SPAC, but that's just, you can view that as a cost of, of the IPO process. But going back to your question on M and A, um, again, the M and A markets have always, you know, been strong, and so I don't, I, I haven't seen any shift in that other than companies which may have thought about potentially doing a sale. I think the SPACs have extended their life and potentially their desire to become a public company. Interesting. So I was thinking a little bit about uh, what CFOs could do to be. Uh, you know, for example, more prepared to accept later stage investments as a as a private firm, or what they can do earlier on in the business life cycle that you've seen that has been whether it's uh, corporate structuring, whether it's what the relationship looks like with the CEO. Are there some other pillars that allow for successful routes to continuously growing and having the financing available that matches the needs of? Uh, the company? I know it's a pretty broad question. Yeah. But. yeah. So I think it was sort of getting to the heart of the matter we wanted to talk about is really, you know, the CFO needs to be prepared always for the unexpected, right? As I like to call it. And what that means is you better make sure your house is in order uh, if you're going to have something unexpected occur. And so that's why, you know, initially when I talked about some of the things I did at the beginning around, you know, being the trusted partner, being strategic having elite teams, you know, having the right processes, people and systems in place. If you don't have all those things operating effectively, it doesn't allow you to prepare for what I would call the unexpected. So I think for CFOs out there, uh, you never know when you're going to be called in to raise new capital. You never know when you're going to be called in to potentially think about doing a public offering. You never know when you're going to be called in to do a major acquisition. But each one of those three, and I'll touch upon them as we go along here, each one of those three has different complexities that your organization may or may not have been prepared for previously. But so the first order of business for any private company CFOs out there is to make sure your, you know, your, your existing company has your, uh, all, your, or all the things in place that will allow you to prepare for the unexpected. Then, you know, I've got many examples of this and um, where all of a sudden markets were very good, like you mentioned earlier on, Andrew, and uh, companies who had raised money earlier on last year now have an opportunity to raise even more money because they've executed on their use of money and more importantly, the, the plethora of capital that's available. And so you've got to be prepared that if investors come to you and they want to increase the valuation 
that you've got, you know, your forecast, your KPIs, your historical results, your past performance, all those things that you can demonstrate to them, which obviously would lead to a quick capital raise. But the two that, you know, really what I would call are two of the unexpected, which have a lot of issues associated with, are the IPOs market and the acquisitions. And I'll touch on the acquisitions first, just because, again, this is the the CFO, it's not only being the CFO of the operating company, it's also being the CFO of potentially the acquired company and needing to think about valuation structuring. And it doesn't stop with when the deal gets closed, right? It's then it becomes all about integration. And I think, you know, John Chambers was a master from Cisco at uh, any time he did an acquisition, he integrated all of the operations of that acquired, almost all on day one. Um, I'm not suggesting that's the right model for every company, but I think people and companies need to think about what's their model for integration because after you get done with the financial valuation, the structuring, you need to operate that company in a way that adds value to the existing shareholders and obviously takes care of whatever capital you raise to do the acquisition. So I would say on the acquisition side for the CFOs out there is if you're anticipating an acquisition, anticipate what is the integration plan. It's not just financial, it's operational. And so therefore that goes back to the other point I mentioned about being cross-functional across the organization so that you can bring a holistic view in terms of what the issues are associated with doing an acquisition. And then the second one is the IPOs. And um, this is the one where, you know, you've got to be prepared to be a public company before either one, do your SPAC transaction or two, do your direct listing or do your traditional IPO because you've got different financial reporting requirements around quarterly and annual. Uh, you've got different governance requirements around board composition and, um, and audit committee meetings. You've got, depending upon the size of your company, internal control Sarbanes-Oxley testing that needs to be done at a minimum by management, but also potentially by your auditor uh, at some point in the future. Um, and then you've got... Uh, you know, to close your books really on a timely basis each quarter and each year end. And you have to have the ability to forecast so that you don't miss your guidance that you've given or you aren't able to update your guidance to the extent you do it quarterly or, or annually. So, Andrew, I'll stop there for a moment, let you give some questions. But I think it's, you know, for me, it's preparing for the unexpected, but making sure you've got your plumbing for the existing house, if you will, working properly before you know, something unexpected happens. Thanks, Brian. I would honestly suggest that anybody listening right now goes just right back to the beginning of, you know, that point, because you just laid out what the roadmap looks to as to getting your house in order and the importance of it. So I think that may have been, um, you know, exactly what this audience needed to hear. And I was thinking if we could slightly transition along the same topic with, um, I know I mentioned that you're a retired partner of KPMG, but that does not mean that you are not working. So maybe without using you know names or any current things you're working on, maybe if you could give the audience a little bit of a taste of what you've seen in the last two years of what has worked really well in terms of you mentioned a great maybe a great example is integration strategy mm -hmm. across uh, what looks great in terms of successful integration and operational streamlining during a big, you know, big transaction M&A or, you know, continuing yeah. your point, but maybe using some up-to-date examples through the last year and maybe give the audience a little bit of information <clears throat> on uh, what you're working on right now. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So I would put 
sort of the work that I'm doing today in the couple of buckets, uh, you know, board role, advisory board role, and then just a consultant. But at the end of the day, what all, all the things that I'm doing are basically leveraging all of the skills and experience that I uh, was able to capture during my you know, 39 plus years at Anderson and KPMG, working with companies, and I said, across life cycles and understanding where they are. I'll give you a couple examples. I'm not going to mention company names, but in this uh, in this market, I happened to be working with one client that was able to raise you know significant amount of money last fall at a very hefty valuation, and they utilized that to do an acquisition, which uh, proved to be pretty transformative in terms of accreting value to the company almost immediately. But they now have to deal with the uh, the integration strategy, because at the end of the day, if they don't do it properly you'll run the risk that the uh, the value you wanted to create will dissipate. Now, with that said, uh, at the same point, that was a pretty transformative acquisition for them. It also allowed them to immediately go back out to the private markets and raise more capital at a valuation that was almost double what they uh, raised it at uh, almost six months ago. And so there, the CFO had to deal really with two things. One, hey, an acquisition that he had to be involved with from a valuation and structuring and closing standpoint to now having to integrate. But more importantly, also, he had to simultaneously be running a parallel path because he had investors who were willing to invest more money into the company to fund you know, an inorganic strategy going forward because they saw the value of what an acquisition could do to, the, uh, to, to this entity. So there, uh, this, this CFO had a really uh, you know, he had two unexpected things happen. One, the acquisition, and then two, immediately having to go back out and raise capital. But because, you know, his his basic house was in order, he was able to at least execute on both of those, recognizing that the integration plan uh, is going to take a little bit longer than originally thought, but it's in process. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great example. I was thinking a little bit about how challenging the work environment has been uh, working from home and trying to do large transactions, it seems in the flurry of all these transactions, it's actually been a fairly successful push to digital. And I think a big piece of that is how quickly we adapted to uh, remote work. And it actually might be a, a more fun transition to discuss. Um, you mentioned work-life balance being a big piece of being a successful CFO. And I would imagine that the CEO-CFO relationship is uh, only strained by exhaustion. But what are some of the things that you've done or that you've seen others do during this past year to be able to balance uh, all of these different transactions, all of the flurry of work? Uh, I know that a lot of people have created a quasi 24-7 office space in their homes, which may might have been productive for a number of months. But I think we've seen a pretty significant amount of burnout. But seems like the appetite for transactions there and that a lot of people are able and willing to respond. So what have you seen that's been successful on that front? Yeah, so to your point, Andrew, I think we're all probably, because of the pandemic, working more hours every day than we otherwise would have because we don't have the commute and don't necessarily know when to put the computer down. But obviously, you know, Zoom and uh, some of the other video conferencing has been extremely helpful in terms of creating you know, transparency and ease of communication. It's also become a little bit of a crutch, right? Because we're probably holding more Zoom calls than we need to. But for now, it's been the only way really in which we could effectively communicate other than through 
email or, or phone calls. Obviously, with the pandemic changing and office openings happening, I think it's going to be not, I would call business as usual, because I don't think my expectation is that we will not go back to five days, for most people, five days in the office as being the norm. And it'll be a hybrid model of work at home and uh, and then work in the office. But what will change, I think, is that for those folks that need to have what I call client-facing responsibilities, they will get back on buses, trains, and planes, because the last thing you're going to want to find is that your competition has gone out and had those face-to-face meetings and you were complacent at home still you know, tied to the, the Zoom. So I think for certain functions within the company, uh, you're going to see you know, more of a return to normal as opposed to others, which are going to become the hybrid model. But you know, one thing I think the pandemic proved to all of us is that you don't know what you don't know, but we all were resilient and we figured out a way you know, to, when all of a sudden you realized that you had to stay home and couldn't really go out other than to get your groceries or, or whatever else you needed, that you would find a way to make it happen. And I think we've done a good job at that. Yeah, absolutely. Just amount of resilience, I think, has been really incredible to see. Sort of curious to, to know if you've had, uh, this might be a, an interesting question, but I'm curious if there are any transactions that have really stood out to you as purely a transaction of this time that probably won't happen again. Has there been anything that's been just bizarre in in your mind, maybe without even a specific example, but uh, just curious if there's been anything that's really stood out to you in terms of any of the topics we mentioned around transactions or even interesting CFO personalities that you've dealt with. Um, Anything that's been purely just a mark of the times, whether it's a funny Zoom call or anything in, in terms of just uniqueness? Yeah, I, I can't really say there is because it seems like uh, you know, even outside of the pandemic, for 39 years, there's always been something that uh, has sort of you know been unique or, or different. Um, but I think uh, one thing that might be just in terms of the pandemic is just the resilience on the part of CFOs to really execute for those that were obviously on the right side of the street, really execute in a market that was uh, hungry for you know, new investments and new opportunities. Um, and so, you know, I applaud those CFOs that were on the right side of the street and were able to take advantage of what I would call a plethora of, um, of private capital and also market opportunity. And for the other CFOs on the other side of the street, I applaud them too for being able to have weathered the storm and now probably seeing some light at the end of the tunnel and uh, having seen that their companies, whether they be private or public, start to recover. Yeah, that's fantastic. I sort of have tried to transition these podcasts into opening up some creative thought towards the end of our conversations around what my guests feel are just underestimated in the world, given their unique vantage point. And it's been really interesting to hear across industries, across uh, life cycles, all all people and uh, company sizes and faces I'm sure you're very familiar with. But whether it's in the world of transactions or business, or completely outside, whether it's, you know, athletics or, you know, personal uh, heroes. Is there anything that is inspiring you that maybe you feel is underestimated in the world today? Could be a technology or, you know, really any, anything that you're thinking about? Well, that's a pretty broad-ended question and uh, <laughs> probably going to give you something that probably people are thinking about, but they're probably 
don't believe it's going to become a reality. And that's part of the reasons why, you know, the Fed has been so insistent on keeping the Fed policy, you know, where it is. But the one thing I think people are taking for granted is uh, inflation or the lack of inflation. And um, it's only when it happens that it becomes unexpected. And I think um, people probably should be thinking more about looking inward at their own business. And they're probably seeing things like supply chain disruptions. They're probably seeing labor disruptions. They're probably seeing, you know, commodity price increases. You know, so typically where there's smoke, there's fire. And so I'm not arguing, saying that uh, they're not aware of it. But I think we become complacent when we hear folks like the Fed speak to policy as driving and keeping interest rates low as opposed to what's really happening out there. And one example I'll just give, and I'm not sure how much your folks follow Sam Zell. And I follow Sam religiously because I founded a program with the Ross School of Business at Michigan called Quantum Shift uh, when I was at KPMG. And it was a one-week executive education program that was for uh, CEOs of uh, private companies. And that program still continues today, although it's been um, dormant for the last two years because it's an in-person program. And it will, will, will return in 2022. But long story short, for the five years before I retired, uh, Sam Zell was typically a keynote speaker at that one-week session for an hour. And it was probably one of the, not only the most well-attended, well but most insightful one-hour sessions that I think I got every year. And uh, Sam recently, well, before I get to what he recently did, for years he talked about asset classes and where he would invest. And one asset class that he always stayed away from was gold. His view on gold was, well, it's got no underlying cash flow and I've got to pay somebody to store it. Well, Sam has recently made a significant investment of his assets into gold. And um, it's because he believes, again, inflation may return, but might be reminiscent of the 70s. So I looked to some people that, you know, sometimes you call them lucky, but maybe we got to start listening to other folks besides just the Fed. And so uh, another, another thing for CFOs out there, just be prepared for the unexpected. If there's going to be an increase in inflation and interest rates, be prepared to start thinking about what you're going to do now so that when it does happen, you're prepared to act. And if it doesn't, then you take advantage of the, of the market cycle. Well, Brian, I can't imagine ending on a, any higher note than that. Uh, just in terms of all of the amazing insights you've given the crowd, I know that this is going to be one of those evergreen podcasts that CFOs should be able to go back and consider all of the insights that you've delivered in such an eloquent way, especially in breaking down what makes for comprehensive preparation for the unexpected and what to look for in you know, time to come. And I'm sure we'll speak again soon, but thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Andrew. This has been the Modern CFO Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to subscribe or leave a comment. It helps. Thanks so much.